It's been three years since Peter Cohen left Massachusetts Institute of Technology amid the Jeffrey Epstein scandal. 1,000 days that have changed his life. Epstein's donations to MIT and several other prestigious universities continue to raise questions. It's a day and age where colleges and universities are in a race for cash. Questions surrounding the viability and ethics of taking money from potentially flawed donors are very real. Ronan Farrow's 2019 New Yorker article linked Cohen to the Epstein donations. Even more revealed emails that swept them under the rug and categorized them as such. With Cohen's reputation in shambles, he left Brown University as well. Cohen's recent Quillette article placed him front and center, explaining the mechanisms that allowed MIT to continue their Epstein relationship and thrive from it. He fired back at Farrow, alleging him of floating a conspiracy. Today, he tells his story. I'm Emmanuel Barbari, and this is Fordham Conversations, a show that taps into the Fordham University community to discuss and uncover issues that impact our world. Joined by Peter Cohen. Peter, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Peter, so the New Yorker's response to you, you wrote that piece in Quillette, and they say that Peter Cohen confirms the New Yorker's reporting, including that Cohen facilitated anonymous donations from Jeffrey Epstein, a person he knew to be a convicted sex offender, that the Media Lab went to significant lengths to keep those donations a secret, and that staff there objected. Cohen writes that he was absolutely right in the thick of it, referring to Epstein's donations to the Media Lab. Cohen's claim that Epstein was not listed as a disqualified donor is contradicted by Swenton, a former development associate at the lab. We stand by the story. Peter, given that the New Yorker and Ronan Farrow's article was a big reason for you coming forth, what's your response to this statement? Well, I was kind of surprised by this statement. Um, I published my article on July 6th, and it got a little bit of press interest. And so the New Yorker put out um, the statement to some some venues. They seem to have doubled down on um, some of the contentions that they've been making in the story. As far as um, the statement overall, I think it gets a D for reading comprehension. Um, it says, I confirm the New Yorker's reporting. In fact, my story in Quillette was pointing out all the mistakes that were in the New Yorker article. Um, back in September 6th, the New Yorker put out this story about the Media Lab and Jeffrey Epstein. Um, I worked at the Media Lab from 2014 to 2017, and I was director of development there. And when the New Yorker story came out in September 6th, it had some fundamental problems. I think that by September 12th, um, the truth was out there. The president of MIT had put out a statement saying that senior administrators were aware of Jeffrey Epstein's gifts to the Media Lab and had approved them. And then on January 10th, MIT put out a 61-page report based on a four-month investigation about what happened with Jeffrey Epstein's gifts to the Media Lab. Um, nowhere in the New Yorker's statement do they refer to that report. Um, instead, they keep repeating what they said in their September 6th story. So I was very disappointed by this statement, and I'm surprised that they would want to double down on some of their more controversial contentions. Peter, you said and you wrote that you felt vindicated after MIT revealed its findings. What about the report, the lengthy report, made you feel that way? Well, like I said, MIT did a four-month investigation. I cooperated with that investigation. 
They interviewed dozens of people. They read more than 600,000 emails that various people had sent. And it was pretty clear from the report that came out on January 10th that the media, that, that, that there were certain decision makers in all of this. There were people who made the decision to take money from Jeffrey Epstein, and there were people that made decisions that the Media Lab could accept that money. And one of them was my boss, whose name was Joe Ito. And then there were three vice presidents. These were members of the MIT president's senior staff who said it was okay for the Media Lab to accept this money. Um, incidentally, that decision had been made in 2013 before I even started working at the Media Lab. And so when, you, when I read all that, it, it sounded like it was pretty clear to, to MIT at least that there were people who made the decisions and then there were people who, who followed them through, who carried them out. And I was not one of the decision makers. I was one of the people whose job was to help implement those decisions. And I'll admit that. But in Ronan Farrow's article, he made me sound like a co-conspirator. Um, and so I felt that it, in January, the truth had come out. But even then, I still couldn't get a correction from the New Yorker. One of the things I write about in my Quillette story is that um, from December until June, I have been contacting the New Yorker and my attorney has been contacting the New Yorker asking for a correction or an update to their September 6th story. And they've made it very clear that they will interview me for a new story, but they will not correct the story that's still on their website from September 6th. You left the MIT Media Lab in 2017 and you left Brown University once this story blew up. You mentioned that it painted you as a co-conspirator. If you could go back to that moment where you knew about the donations and you were part of MIT, what could you have done differently in that moment? Well, that's a very good question, and it's a question a lot of people have asked. And so I'll answer this in a couple of ways. Um, I knew that taking money from Jeffrey Epstein had been approved by senior administrators at MIT. The vice president for advancement, um, for, sorry, the, who was the head development person had approved it. The general counsel, which means MIT's head lawyer, had approved it. And so I was pretty comfortable with that. That meant that a lot of senior people had looked at this and had decided it was okay for the media lab to take money from Jeffrey Epstein. Um, I didn't feel that it was my place to dispute this decision. Um, when I was interviewed by the MIT investigators in October, you know, they said to me, why didn't you complain? And what I said to them is, well, do you mean, why didn't I go to the media? And they said, oh no, that's not what we mean. But at that point, senior people at MIT knew about it. My boss at the Media Lab obviously knew about it. And so I felt that this decision had been pretty well vetted and it was a final decision. Um, you know, nowadays we hear about employees marching out of their offices in protests of decisions that their bosses have made. But back in 2014 and 2015, um, that wasn't done as often. And I felt like this had been vetted, the decision had been made. So I'm not sure what else I could have done um, differently looking back on this. 
when the story came out in 2019, you write how your life changed drastically and you took that long drive. How has your day-to-day life changed as a result of getting tied up in this story? Well, it was pretty bad from September to January, I'll say that. Um, so one thing to keep in mind is that um, starting in September, I was under investigation by two universities, Brown University, where I was working then, and the MIT, which was doing its own investigation about what happened at the Media Lab. So my attorneys and I decided that I wasn't going to speak to the press, which meant that the misinformation that Ronan Farrow had put out there just sat there um, uncontested for four months. Now, originally, MIT had said their investigation would only take a month. And I figured, well, I can live for a month until the truth comes out. But it actually went on for four months. And it was a very difficult four months. Um, As I mentioned in my Quillette story, I did resign from Brown on January 21st after the MIT investigation was concluded. And I've been working as a um, fundraising consultant, and I've also um, been working on a a book. Um, There's a lot of stories related to this that I couldn't fit into an article on Quillette. Um, And I have more to say about fundraising at American universities generally. So... Um, that's been how I've been keeping myself busy. It was difficult to explain to people my side of the story until the Quillette story came out on July 6. You referenced your book and you referenced your lawyer earlier as well. What would you say is the overall hope of these efforts as you look towards some form of clarity? Well, I have two hopes. One is I'd like to see the New Yorker admit that they made a mistake in their article. That's just the really simple part. Um, the New Yorker... Up- ran its article on September 6th, and on September 7th, they updated it. Um, They put an update on the top that Joe Ito, the head of the media lab, had resigned. And I think they could update it again based on the information that MIT put out in January. My other hope, though, is I want to talk about fundraising generally. Um, This is an MIT story. It's also a Harvard story. Harvard got donation money from Jeffrey Epstein. Um, But universities, museums, um, social service organizations around the United States have to spend a lot of time raising a lot of money. And there's a lot of people in my profession who um, are responsible for doing that. Uh, it's, It's a big occupation development. And I feel that there's a story to be told here about the pressure to take money from from various kinds of donors. Somebody wrote in relation to this story that, you know, not everybody can be Tom Hanks. Some of the people you have to take money from, there's going to be people who disagreed with them. Now, Jeffrey Epstein is an extreme case. And I would say that in retrospect, everyone agrees that taking money from him um, was a bad idea. But universities like Harvard or MIT or Fordham are faced every day with you know, here's somebody who wants to give us money, and maybe they work for a company that some of our students object to. Um, so I want to walk, talk more broadly about um, fundraising in the U.S. I think you underscore a great point there. What would you say is the stem of the flawed system in colleges that leads to them feeling the need to take donations from potentially unsavory people? Well, um, two things. One is the definition of unsavory varies from person to person. 
but I think more people are focused on this now. Um, the other thing is that universities just need a lot of money. Um, research at universities is expensive. Educating students, not all of whom can pay full tuition, is expensive. And so colleges and universities raise a lot of money. Um, at MIT, they were trying to raise six, $6 billion when I worked there. That was the goal of their um, fundraising campaign. And so uh, when you're trying to raise $6 billion, you can't just take money from, from Mother Teresa. You are looking at people that work in different kinds of industries um, who have made their money in different ways. And that puts a lot of pressure on people. Again, I've, I say in my story that Epstein is such an extreme case. You can look at Epstein now and say, of course, MIT should not have taken his money. Um, that was probably a bad decision. It wasn't my decision. But there's a lot of gray area. And I don't think people know how to deal with that very well. Harvard just put out a gift acceptance guide on June 30th somewhat stemming from their own involvement with Epstein, it's not much help. If I was a rank and file fundraiser at Harvard, I, I wouldn't be able to make a lot of decisions about wh what to take and what not to take based on that guide. So it, it's very difficult and they're, like, my, my book is called um, Jeffrey Epstein, the MIT Media Lab and the Race for Dollars at American's Top Universities. It is a race. Um, and the pressure to raise more and more money is just growing. And so that's going to cause institutions to make mistakes. How could the system change for the better in your mind? Um, well, you know, that's a very good question. And one of the things I'm planning to do as part of my book is to interview industry leaders. Um, there's a lot of demands from students and faculty, and they're very hard to implement. Um, People have said that they would like committees to review all donations. That would be extremely hard. There's so many donations. Um, people would like um, trans more transparency. People would like to end anonymous giving. Jeffrey Epstein's gifts to MIT were anonymous, meaning that he wasn't included in a list of donors. Um, so ending anonymous giving might help. It might also hurt people who um, don't want credit for their gifts because they're not the kind of people that publicize their generosity. So, but I think we're at a moment of reckoning in university fundraising. There's been a number of scandals recently, not just involving Jeffrey Epstein. And I think people are, industry leaders are starting to look at this and say, um, what can we do um, to make sure we don't make a terrible mistake like Jeffrey Epstein again. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Emmanuel Barbari talking with former Director of Development at MIT's Media Lab, Peter Cohen. Moving back to your case a little bit, you said that Ronan Farrow in his article shoehorned his scattered evidence. Could you hash that out a little further and lay out some of the points where he thinks where you think, rather, that your reputation was damaged in an unfair way. Sure. <clears throat> As I say in my article, I think that the main issue is that um, Ronan Farrell wrote that Jeffrey Epstein was a disqualified donor. Um, that was a term that MIT used. Um, 
I think Ronan Farrell thought that meant that the media lab was banned from taking money from Jeffrey Epstein. But as the MIT investigation showed, disqualified just meant that somebody was unlikely to give. Um, the media lab was not banned from taking money from Epstein. It had been approved by senior administrators at MIT before I even started working there. If the media lab had been banned from taking money from Epstein and we had done it anyway, then I should have been fired and my boss should have been fired. Um, but there was no such ban. And I think um, Ronan Farrow, not being very familiar with higher education, he's sort of a Hollywood reporter, um, didn't understand what this meant. Um, and it was basically jargon within MIT, and it suggested that Epstein was a band donor, and we made his gift anonymous to hide this from the rest of MIT. The media lab, the MIT media lab was part of MIT, which meant that we could not accept money at the media lab without the rest of MIT approving it. So I don't know that Ronan Farrell should have been expected to understand that in September when he wrote his story. Um, but by September 12th, the president of MIT had put out a statement um, saying that this was the case. And on January 10th, there was a 61-page report explaining that this was the case. And so I think by January, the New Yorker should have been ready to update their story or run a correction. Do you think Farrow's status, as you call it, as a dragon slayer, as a celebrity, bought you little wiggle room in the whole process because he's been so credible as a journalist? Well, he, he's certainly famous. And, you know, I read um, Catch and Kill, which is his book about going up against Harvey Weinstein. And it was pretty clear that he was the underdog there and he did some, some great reporting. But in May, the New York Times put out a long article by a reporter named Ben Smith that started to look at some of the inaccuracies in Farrell's reporting. Um, that was actually a big turning point for me because it meant that I wasn't just standing there alone saying this story is inaccurate. This was the New York Times saying there is a pattern where Farrell likes to turn stories into villains and heroes and to find conspiracies. And then some other reporters started writing about this as well. And so starting in May, I think people were more willing to listen to me and to say, hey, yeah, I've noticed that there's a pattern here with Ronan Farrell's reporting. Um, interestingly, The New Yorker always stands by Ronan Farrell's stories. Um, they will not correct it. Um, they, just, they just stand by it. I've had some people tell me on the, some reporters tell me that The New Yorker doesn't like to run corrections generally. It implies that their fact-checking process failed. Um, but in this case, I, I think the story was deeply flawed, I, and I think it's part of a larger pattern. So I think Pharaoh has been put on notice, and not just by, by me, but by the New York Times and by other publications. Um, and I'm interested to see if the New Yorker is going to respond to all of these stories about Pharaoh's reporting. Do you think the Ben Smith story in the Times inspired your coming forth with the Quillette article and, the, and your eventual book for that matter? Were you even planning on doing any of this before that story came out? Yeah, I started writing in January, actually. But, I, but like I said, um, I think people cared more after the Ben Smith 
article came out because it pointed to a number of examples. And, um, you know, me waving my hand saying, look at me, Peter Cohen, um, I don't think that was sufficiently persuasive. But with the New York Times pointing to a similar pattern, it made it, um, it, made it a big deal. But I actually had, you know, a draft of my story done by, by March. And I think the fact that Ben Smith came forward and said there's this pattern uh, made Quillette more interested in it. Quillette, interestingly enough, had run a story in May as well about Ronan Farrell, which is one reason I went to them, because I knew they were receptive to the idea that Farrell's stories had inaccuracies. There was a petition to have you step down at Brown for being associated with the Epstein donations in your previous role at MIT. Do you find it a little troubling that a, a story comes out and this has to do with your previous life at MIT and then it kind of blows up? Do you think that's a microcosm of a larger problem in today's society? Well, I, you know, it's funny. Uh, people talk a lot now about cancel culture. And in my dealings with Brown University or with MIT, I didn't feel like they were trying to cancel me. I think they were trying to listen to me. But it is true that 110 people, mostly Brown alumni, signed a petition asking me to be fired. Um, I found out about this petition because the Providence Journal um, called me up and said, hey, there's a petition that's been sent to us. Um, and also the petition was sent to the president of Brown. Um, and the petition actually contained more inaccuracies than the Ronan Farrow story. They took what Farrow had said and they expanded it. Um, and that petition is still up on the web. I looked at it this last week. And so I was very disturbed that um, these alumni of Brown University had written this petition um, according to the um, Province Journal article, there were two alumni who had written the petition, Alexis Van Hattoom and Sam Heft Lifty, um, and then 110 people total signed it. Um, and, you know, the thing about something like that is it's on the web forever. It's the same with the New Yorker story. You could say, well, the story is passed, the truth has come out, but the original New Yorker story is on the web without a correction. The petition is on the web. It's still up there. There's no indication that new information has come out. And so thanks to the internet, all of these things are still there forever. And that's why I felt I had to tell my side of the story in Quillette, because um, otherwise people are just gonna read what Ronan Farrow said, or they're gonna read what these petition writers wrote. And um, that's what they're going to believe. Taking everything into account, the Epstein donations, everything that's occurred since, but also your entire career at MIT and Brown and associated with, with higher education, how do you look back on it? How do you reflect on it? Well, you know, I say in my story that the Media Lab was a weird place. Um, I think I had a strange experience there and Jeffrey Epstein was a strange donor. Um, uh, but. Uh, I feel that overall I've, I have had a successful career and I'm still doing consulting work. Um, and I, I think, like I said, that there are lessons to be learned for the entire profession. And that's one reason I'm writing a book. I'm not just writing a book about Peter Cohen. I'm writing a book about the profession. There's a lot of pressure put on fundraisers at all levels to raise all sorts of money 
and these ethical mishaps are going to keep happening. And so as a consultant, I'm sort of in a position to say things um, that people that work for one university cannot. Um, when I was working for Brown or MIT or Harvard, I, I couldn't have done this interview. I couldn't have, because I would have been representing those organizations. Now that I'm not working for any organization um, and I'm working as a consultant, I, I can say some truths about the fundraising industry that maybe some of my colleagues are not in a position to say. Peter, one more for you. You've mentioned the book and how you look to elaborate on everything, but also serve the profession as well. Has anything surprised you about the process of writing a book and, and what's that been like? Um, well, it's, it's, yes. I mean, it's, it's been hard and it's been long. Um, two things have surprised me. One is um, when this was all going down in September, I kind of ignored a lot of the press and I've had to go back and read a lot of articles about myself I've had to read a lot of interviews that the whistleblower Signe Swenson did. Um, so I've just learned things that I blocked out um, in September. I would also say, um, you know, I've been trying to um, work with the media now since I published my story in Quillette. And I found that um, a lot of reporters are not interested in looking at their old stories and seeing where they might have said something incorrect. And so, I thought people would be very eager to correct the record, um, but, but not so much. Um, reporters don't like to be told that they might have been misled by Ronan Farrow and what they wrote. So that was a little surprising too. Um, but um, one of the great things has been that my colleagues in the development industry have been very excited about the fact that I'm writing this book. Everyone in development who's read this story has given me positive feedback and said, you've told some truths that we couldn't say. So that's been an exciting surprise as well. That's the voice of Peter Cohen. Peter, thanks so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you. Big thanks to Peter Cohen for joining the show. As he works on his forthcoming book, you can find his tell-all story on Quillette, and you can follow him on Twitter, at Cohen Memoirist. If you missed any parts of the interview, be sure to visit WFUV.org for the full conversation. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Emmanuel Barbari.